coming up on this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And we must be continually watchful about our sin, uh, about our possible idolatries and our sin. Where do our affections lie? And um, Owens even talks about those older Christians. This is very interesting. Older Christians who can become susceptible because they've been with the Lord and grown in the Lord, and they let their guard down. No one says he's seen this happen with older Christians. And uh, you can never let your guard down until the day you die or the day Jesus comes back. Well, good morning, and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and I did say it's morning because, unusually, we're having a broadcast uh, done on Friday morning, September 21st, and um, normally we do these in the afternoon, and normally I start out by saying good afternoon, but it is morning. However, as this is being recorded, it might be evening where you are. I don't know. But anyway, uh, we do welcome you to this particular edition of the podcast. And as I said, this is a podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And if you want to know more information about the seminary, you can visit us at our website, gpts.edu. If you're interested in more information about this podcast, who is the host? That would be me, of course. Um, What's my background? You can visit us at confessingourhope.com. Dot com. As well as doing that, you can catch up on past episodes and broadcasts of this podcast. And also, you can now listen to them on your smartphone, whether an uh, Apple or Android-powered smartphone, by downloading our new mobile app that is available. It is free, and you can get information about that at the confessingourhope.com website. Today, we have a very interesting discussion lined up. We uh, uh, chased each other around a little bit, I think, in the beginning to get the schedule worked out, but we've done that, and um, I'm looking forward to this this, this this discussion today. We'll be talking with uh, Dr. G.K. Beale about his book that he wrote a few years ago on uh, titled, We Become What We Worship. It's a biblical theology of idolatry, and Dr. Beale is an ordained minister in the, Pres- in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and he is a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and he's the professor of New Testament and Biblical Theology, and perhaps you're familiar with his name as he just wrote um, a New Testament Biblical Theology that just came out not too long ago. So, Dr. Beal, it's great to have you on. I'm glad we were able to get our schedules worked out, but it's great to have you on to talk about this subject, um, an intriguing subject, I think, and I look forward to the discussion. Yes. So, Dr. Beale, tell me, when you, I think you wrote this book in 2009, if, I'm, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, well, actually, uh, that's pretty close, 2008, which means I, I probably finished it in 2006. It always takes a while to get these things published. Sure. What was the genesis behind this book? I mean, what prompted you to say, you know, this, this subject needs a full-blown treatment, um, as it were? Uh, two things. First, um, uh, the the notion of, of idolatry, again, the, the title of the book is We Become What We Worship, uh, subtitled A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. But when one reads about idolatry uh, in, in uh, Christian circles, especially uh, conservative uh, evangelical circles, 
often <clears throat> what's covered are maybe a few passages in the Bible, but the focus is on modern idols, what they are, um, number of, uh, uh, one book comes to my mind, the number of books and articles. And, mm-hmm. um, um, and then uh, when you do find discussion of idolatry, uh, in the Bible, um, uh, they're good discussions uh, about how uh, Israel uh, and, and, and the Gentiles would uh, commit themselves uh, to something other than God. Uh, they would worship something other than God, idolatry, and, and its most simple uh, uh, definition is worshiping something in place of the true God, something that is false. Um, and many good discussions, but it was it's pretty unusual to find a major discussion on the particular aspect of idolatry, that when you commit yourself to something that's not God, you become like it. Mm. And the point of the book is to go into the Bible to show uh, that theme. Uh, that it is not a theme that is just uh, um, included in a, a few passages. In passing, if you look at an encyclopedia article about the Bible, encyclopedia article on idolatry, they'll sometimes mention Psalm 115 and 135, where um, uh, that notion is, is, is found. Um, but uh, uh, so, uh, actually, the way I entered into this um, subject was by um, actually preparing a sermon on uh, Isaiah chapter 6. And um, I began to uh, interpret that passage, and very quickly I began to uh, get further and further into it. Uh, I ended up writing an article in a a journal of uh, Hebrew exegetical studies called Vedas Testamentum in 1991, and then, um, uh, actually, the first time I preached this was in Gordon Conwell's chapel in perhaps 1986 or so, and, and I've uh, preached it quite a bit since. Uh, as I continued to think about this notion, the idea of the article really was that uh, Isaiah is commissioned uh, uh, in chapter 6, verse 8, and following in Isaiah 6 to... Uh, have a pretty sober mission, and that uh, that mission is uh, to command Israel not to understand hmm. uh, God's word. It's very difficult. Uh, uh, God tells him to tell the people, "Keep listening, but don't perceive, and keep looking, but don't understand." And those those are imperatives in the Hebrew called mm-hmm. Joseph's. And and then in verse ten, God says, "Make the hearts of the people fat, make their ears dull." Their eyes dim, so they won't understand. They won't be healed, and so this this is one of the most difficult texts in the Bible because God is telling Isaiah that through Isaiah's preaching, he's going to harden and blind the people. That's a difficult theological notion. Hmm. And as I began to look at it in the context of Isaiah, I began to see in chapters one to five and elsewhere uh, throughout the book that idolatry was a major problem, and. I began to see, uh, and I mentioned Psalm 115 and 135, uh, I saw a parallel there between Isaiah 6 and, the, and those two texts, which are fairly identical in the Psalms, 
where it says the nations, uh, the idols of the nations have eyes but can't see and ears but can't hear, um, uh, etc. And then it concludes with those who make them will become like them, um, even those who worship them. And there, so the psalm states the principle very explicitly twice. And I actually think uh, it's hard to know when the psalm was written. It could be that the psalms dependent on Isaiah, or Isaiah is dependent on the psalm. Uh, whichever is the case, um, uh, they mutually interpret one another. I think there's a link. And the point would be then: Why would Isaiah be told to tell Israel not to have uh, ears, even though they have physical ears? not to see even though they have physical eyes. Well, the idols have eyes we can't see, and they have ears we can't hear. Well, and, I, I, I'm sorry. And so, and so the point is that uh, Isaiah is, God's commissioning Isaiah to make the people as spiritually lifeless as their idols. They've been mm-hmm. intractable in idolatry, and the punishment for that is to become more like the idols. You love idols? You won't repent? Here is your punishment. So it's somewhat like Romans 1, where you find the notion of God giving over people to more sin, actually because of their idolatry. Hmm. Did you, uh, you, uh, did you have a question? Yeah, it was, it was intriguing to me as I read through that section. Uh, certainly it's the foundational chapter, um, I think, um, as I was understanding um, you when I was reading the book, um, that you start in Isaiah 6. I, I, I'll admit to being a little perplexed at first as to why would we deal, start in Isaiah 6 dealing with the subject of idolatry. And then I even became more perplexed. Um, there's, there's an end to this, of course. But I was more perplexed when you got to that section where, uh, where you address that idea of, uh, that you just articulated, um, that those difficult imperatives that God placed on Israel, uh, on Isaiah. And I thought, well, why would God say that? <laughs> and you you address that I think very well in the chapter, but I am interested um, maybe in further elaborating on why you think Isaiah six is is really your foundational place to start. I mean, as you indicated, there's there are other places that people yeah, have started. Yeah, one could start at other places, but I I feel like Isaiah six is such a very good illustration of this point. I could have started in Genesis one. And sure, one sure. Three. And of course, in my second chapter, The Origin of Idolatry in the Old Testament, I do. That's, I start off in, uh, in Genesis uh, 1 to 3. And um, so I could have done that, but I felt like you, you really have to interpret Genesis 1 to 3 to get at that notion. I think it's there. But sure. uh, I think it's so clear here, and I bring in Psalm 115 and 135 here. So I, so I go to the Bible and the Old Testament where I think we have the clearest explanation of this, together mm-hmm. with Psalm 115 and 135. And then I go back. Let's look at other Old Testament texts, beginning with Genesis 1 and 3, and let's see if we can perceive the same thing. Now so you're that, inter- That's what I do. So you are right to be perplexed, I think. Yeah, well, but it was helpful to go through, to work through that because by the time I came out the other side, I was a, a little more informed and understood better, I think, than before I started reading it, which is 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 good. I mean, that means you accomplished your mission to take me through the murky waters, yeah. as it were. And but and you, by, you're, by the way, this is not only the notion that if you worship something other than God, you become like it. And, and by the way, Israel wasn't they were the punishment wasn't in Isaiah six that they were going to become petrified idols like Lot's wife who became petrified salt, it's right. that they were to become as spiritually lifeless as the idols. 
And that, that's the point of, of saying they're becoming like the idols. Sure. And, but the converse is, uh, and this is where Genesis 1 to 3 comes in, that if you commit yourself to the true God, you become like him. You don't become him, by the way, but you become like him. You become conformed to his image. And in the light of the New Testament, Romans 8, conformed to the image of Christ. So people are, are no one's in spiritual neutral. You're either becoming conformed to the image of God in Christ or conformed to something in this world that's spiritually lifeless. Yeah, and and as you said throughout the book, and, and emphasized that thesis quite often, in fact, I mean, as I read through it, I, there'd be no way for me to miss the whole point that you were driving to. Regardless, I could have picked up and started reading in the middle of the book, and I would have understood what the point is, what you're driving at over and over and over again. Yeah. Now, your interpretive approach. Um, by, by, by the way, the, and I think what you're referring to there is my repeated statement of the thesis that what you revere, you resemble, right. either for ruin or restoration. That's right. The book's title puts it a different way. We become what we worship. And actually, I say in the introduction, that's not quite right, because that sounds like we become divine. We become like what we worship. Yes, yes. And in fact, you do do that in the introduction uh, yeah. very well and to help clarify that. But also in the introduction of the book, you you uh, you discuss your interpretive approach. Um, you, I think you admit um, up front that that's had some dis- there's been some discussion as to how that relates to approaching this, the text of Scripture. Can you and I know this is going to be probably difficult, but can you briefly summarize your interpretive approach? Yes. Um, basically, it's under the heading of um, letting Scripture interpret Scripture. And, um, and so I see that earlier statements in the Old Testament um, uh, are what I would call fixed statements. And then you see those statements um, uh, unfolded by later Old Testament texts and then in the New Testament. So that Old Testament writers uh, have have what we call very uh, uh, thick authorial intentions, and the rest of Scripture will elaborate on those intentions and bring them out. Uh, And also, as later Old Testament writings and New Testament writings uh, develop and interpret those earlier Old Testament texts and thick descriptions, uh, those later interpretations then cast light back on that original early text. And uh, as Augustine said, the, um, the Old Testament is revealed in the New, and the New is hidden in the Old. And so that's basically what my approach is. Um, what, what is debated about my approach is that um, did Old Te- could Old Testament writers not know fully what they were intending. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, more literal interpreters have a problem with that approach. Um, but uh, the example I give, and by the way, this has just been <laughs> cited and debated on Justin Taylor's blog, uh, September 12th, uh, especially, where it talks about uh, thick and thin authorial intentions uh, in, in, in it alludes to an interview on the Westminster Theological Seminary Bookstore website, but um, I give the example there. Um, If a student were at my house on a summer afternoon, and I told the student I enjoy nothing more than sitting on my patio on the 
on a summer afternoon uh, sipping lemonade and listening to Bach. And if that student a few days later went to another student and said I was over at Beale's house and he likes nothing more on a summer afternoon than listening to Bach. And the other student could say, well, does he like Pachelbel and Vivaldi um, and Telemann? And the answer to that is yes, because I was intending an et cetera uh, uh, in my peripheral intention. Bach was the focus. Sure, uh, sure. Certainly, there's a whole class there. It's a thick description. And I think that Old Testament writers are doing a similar thing. Um, now, I, I try to explain that more fully in, in my most recent book, which is a handbook for the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, just published this August by Baker Books. And, uh, of course, the Old and the New is a, is a classic case where that, that, that comes in. Another way to explain this, I'm sure that all of us, uh, perhaps people listening as well, whether professors or students, Sunday school teachers, Bible study teachers, you, you've been teaching, so you're teaching something, and then in the midst of the teaching, someone says, well, Okay, you said that. What do you do? You, do you mean this? And they say something else, and you think, "Oh, yeah." And, and someone else in the Bible study or Sunday school classes, well, well, do you mean such and such? You said, "Oh, yeah, I do." So that that really, you know, you have a focus in your intention, but there are there's what I would call a peripheral intention, and so we make thick statements, even as humans, even humans who are not under inspiration. How much more so for uh, humans that are under inspiration? In fact, I would even say an unbelieving academic Old Testament scholar who doesn't believe in inspiration, when studying an Old Testament prophet, should study that prophet with the awareness that that prophet thought he was under divine inspiration. Hmm. And therefore would have understood that <laughs> if asked, does God know more about this than you know? And so, well, yeah, you know, and it wouldn't be inconsistent with his intention. In fact, if you ask certain questions uh, of the prophet at that point, he would probably say, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I think that's uh, part of what I'm intending. So, I mean, those would just be some examples of, of the kind of thing that, that I'm contending for, and that later scripture will unravel those intentions from earlier scripture. Sure. Now, when we talk about idolatry, um, there is some discussion in the church um, that when we look at the Old Testament, we see clear illustrations and examples of uh, the nation of Israel, you know, worshiping like the golden calf, which you go through in, in I think, the second or third chapter of the book, and you, you talk about that. And But there seems to be some discussion within the church that I'm not worshiping whatever it is. Um, I'm not worshiping the internet or the computer. I'm not worshiping the television. I'm not worshiping some aspect that's in my life. It's just an item in my life that that holds a certain place in my life, but it's not an object of worship. How would you answer? How would you respond to that? I mean, certainly we see Israel. We know they worshiped the golden calf. We know that there was other forms of idolatry that they worshiped. But how do you separate idolatry? Uh, from worship, or can you? Um, well, ultimately, no. Um, you know, I think I mean, Luther described idol worship as um, that which one trusts in uh, in place of God for their security. Let's um, just paraphrase. And um, I think you have to ask what ultimately are you placing your confidence in for your security in the, in this life? Um, uh, 
is it, is it is it finances? I mean, that's a classic example, of course, of idolatry. Mm-hmm. It was in Israel. It was in Paul's time. He says in Ephesians uh, 5 and Colossians 3 that greed and covetousness is idolatry. Uh, so Paul could see that idolatry wasn't just bowing down to some molten or, or wooden statue. It's uh, it's whatever you uh, commit yourself to. So, I mean, you mentioned the media, the television um certainly you can watch television and uh have a a godly perspective on on television of course there are certain shows you you shouldn't watch uh there are others that are fine but uh i think an example of how the media can become a subtle idol it can sneak up and bite you from the back um and you find yourself actually committed to it becoming like it how so well let's let's say uh you're watching you know some detective series or millions of them you know cold case and um monk and all kinds of detective shows and uh if if uh, you were watching one of those shows and all of a sudden uh, one of the te- detectives came in and talked to a suspect and said you know we really need to uh, we need to go to scripture about this problem or with his colleagues he said we need to pray about this problem or you know this this is really tough let's get some counsel from pastor so and so if if you heard that you can go into the other room if if you know some member of your family was there say come in here something weird's going on the television it's, it, it, they're talking about scripture and and, and god and and praying so the point is that's weird that's odd and um, uh, a former colleague of mine by the David well by the name of David Wells in his book No Place for Truth put it this way, and it gets at what I'm trying to say now: that worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal and righteousness seem strange. And as a person uncritically relaxes and watches the media and saturates themselves in the media in an uncritical way, slowly but surely what happens is they begin to feel that the portrayal on the TV is the portrayal of reality in which God's sovereignty, his presence, scripture and prayer find no place in the daily routine of life. And so as one becomes more and more soaked in that media view of life, that God is not present, then it becomes strange even for believers to feel to, to, that God is present in, in their lives, that prayer is relevant for their lives. And uh, what's happened is they become worldly. That uh, worldliness is what any particular culture does to make sin seem normal, righteousness seem strange. They feel a little strange. This is why <laughs> I'm sure many people have, have, have observed that when people stop going to church, they begin to think the people at church are weird and the world is what's normal. Well, the reason for that is, is because why do we gather together at church? One of the reasons, one of the reasons is to assure ourselves from God's word that this is what is normal from his perspective. And, uh, and that what the world is saying is truly strange. And when we're out there, we're truly pilgrims. And so I, th- I think that this would be a good example of how subtly the media can become something that so dominates your thoughts that you push God out. What in what ways um, have we uh, maybe maybe you can speak from your own personal 
um, observations and perspectives on this, because it seems to me that certainly Scripture speaks loudly to the subject of idolatry. I mean, it, it's it, as you demonstrate it in the book, it's really there cover to cover. The warnings, the the admonitions against it, the prohibitions, um, it's it's everywhere. Um, it, in fact, it, it certainly. I think it's safe to say that one of the critical sins, the, maybe the primary sin of the nation of Israel, which landed them in severe judgment, was this issue of idolatry. And in what ways has the church today, maybe from your own perspective, have they adopted those same sins that Israel committed long ago? Well, in... Uh... In many different ways. I mean, probably innumerable and throughout church history. Um, um, when when a church begins not to focus on the Word of God, but on other things, then the door is opened to idolatry of all kinds. Uh, it can be an idolatry of business management. Uh, again, in, in Wells' many books, <laughs> beginning with No Place for Truth, he, he goes through some of these idolatries uh, uh, that a church can get so bound up in church growth that they they begin to focus on human methods for growth. Uh, and sometimes what happens is that uh, that begins to obscure uh, the principles of the Word of God. Mm. Remember, believers can be partial idolaters. It's not just unbelievers. Uh, right. Solomon was an idolater. Now, there's a question, was Solomon really a believer? That's another issue. But uh, we, we, we know that this can happen, otherwise Paul wouldn't warn people against it. And we know that, in fact, one of the great idolatries of the church and of individuals in the church is self-idolatry, mm. which, which is spoken of in Ezekiel 28, where the king sets his heart was lifted up, sets himself up, everything uh, that begins to revolve around him, totally. And that's true also with, with humans. And in the case of uh, uh, the king of, of, of Tyre, it was, it, 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 you might ask, how can you become like yourself, you know, applying my principle that what you revere, you resemble. Um, and, and the idea is you make yourself bigger and bigger and bigger, but it's an empty bubble, and at some point in this life or the next, God will use a pen and pop that bubble, and mm. you'll realize the deception of your ma pseudo-magnanimous self-idolatry. Now, there's another important element here. Uh, we could also talk about the area of counseling today. When uh, the church, pastors, whoever, begin to focus only on secular methods of counseling, only, then I think what they've done is taken the periphery of common grace. We can certainly learn things from non-Christian counseling, but they've taken that and put it into the center where God's special revelation is, and God's special revelation becomes the periphery. I think that's an idolatry when it happens. And again, David Wells should uh, give me a little commission here. I mean, his books really, <laughs> sure. really elaborate on this. He's one that does that. He's truly a Jeremiad of our uh, 20th and 21st uh, century. And uh, and so when, when that happens, by the way, when you begin to put on the 
uh, uh, periphery God's special revelation, which should be in the center, and you put in the center common grace things that become the focus, it is an idolatry, and furthermore, that becomes the fertile ground from which false teaching arises, mm. which leads to false teaching itself is false in place of the true. That's an idolatry. Sure. By the yeah. way, I think that idolatry, I contend in the book, I think it is the root sin leading to other sins, turning from God to other things. Yeah, and I think functionally that that would have to be the case. I mean, if if you're not solely committed and, and, and have your mind and heart set on the Lord, then by definition, your mind is set on something other than him. Mm-hmm. Um, as you indicated earlier in our discussion, uh, there is no neutrality here. People don't just bubble, you know, float along through life and have their affections are not being touched in, in any direction. There's always something that their affections are, are fixed upon um, at some level. Um, yes. And if it's not the Lord, then it's something. Yes. Um, and, and do you think the church, the people, and again, we're speaking of in general terms, obviously, um, some more than others will be able to answer this question in different ways. But I think, do you think that people in the church are given enough attention in their thought process to this reality? That, that it, it is so easy to be easily taken aside by the things of this life at, to the exclusion where God is involved in it. Well, to the degree that uh, pastors expositorily preach the Word of God to their people as they preach book by book from Old Testament and, and New Testament and alternate them, uh, you're going to cover uh, idolatry. Then it becomes a matter of people, uh, will they heed and listen and be instructed? Now, uh, those churches that do not exposit directly the Word of God, um, there's more potential for this sort of thing to occur. Um, but again, we know even with and in, 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 in very biblically preaching churches, uh, you have all kinds of gradations and degrees of people who may be listening and others not. So that's a very difficult question to to, to answer in any completely objective way. Sure. I think it's just in a general sense, I think the real, you know, there's a certain reality that um, we just don't give enough mental attention to our propensity, as Calvin said, that we're just a bunch of idol factories running around. Yeah, and, I, you know, I was just reading, um, I'm in the midst of reading, in fact, John Owen's, uh, it's, a, it's a little excerpted book called um, The Christian and Indwelling Sin. And one of his major points there is, are we watchful? And we must be continually watchful about our sin, uh, about our possible idolatries and our sin. Where do our affections lie? And um, Owens even talks about those older Christians. This is very interesting. Older Christians who can become susceptible because they've been with the Lord and grown in the Lord, and they let their guard down. And Owens says he's seen this happen with older Christians. And uh, you can never let your guard down until the day you die or the day Jesus comes back. Yeah, and, and, and I mean that's absolutely true. And I and you know I was just thinking as you were talking about you know ways that I may have and may be even now engaging in these kinds of things. I mean I've heard people try to explain this stuff away. They say, well, you know, I I just love to watch. I'll use one that I that I love to 
do things that I like to do. Um, I just love to watch baseball. Um, you know, I'm, I watch baseball games. It's a, it's a big uh, thing of mine. And, and it, what's the difference between someone loving to do something and well, for lack of a better word, worshiping that which they love. Because I think this is where the rub comes in a lot of times, where people say, well, I really enjoy chocolate ice cream, yep. but I don't worship it. Right. Well, let me, let, me, let me elaborate on the worship for a moment, and very briefly. I think the idea is, where do you find your confidence and security? And, and God wants us to find it in him and in nothing else. It's very intriguing that in the book of Revelation, there's a phrase. It's a five-word mm-hmm. phrase. Uh, the one, the ones who dwell upon the earth. It might be a six-word phrase in Greek. Christians are never uh, included in that phrase. It mm. occurs seven or eight times and never refers to Christians. It typically refers to those who are idol worshipers. And then, so the question presses upon us, why is that phrase applied to non-believers or to pseudo-believers in the church and not to true Christians? And the answer is that earth dwellers are those whose ultimate home, security and confidence, is on this earth or in something on this earth. They're people of earthbound vision. They cannot look beyond this earth for their confidence or their security, whereas Hebrews 11 says true Christians are pilgrims on this earth. We're living in exile, as Revelation says. We're in Babylon the Great, the whole world. We're, we're in exile, tempted to sin, and there's persecution. Mm. And John says, persevere in chapter 18, for come out of her, my people, so that you may not partake in her sins and not share in her, uh, her judgment. And so um, this has to do with uh, confidence and, and, and security. So the good gifts that God gives us, uh, what happens is whether it's a game of baseball, whether it's a hobby of playing golf, uh, whether it's money, that's a good gift. All these are good gifts of God. And as long at every point as we are watchful and grateful to God for these good gifts, then our attention is turned to him. When we focus only on these good gifts, and we begin to find security and confidence in these earthly gifts themselves is when idolatry begins. So these are not bad things. Now, of course, I mean, you could do any, any good thing can become a bad thing, depending on your focus. Hmm. Yeah, that's, and that's absolutely true. I was just thinking about that in relationship to perhaps watching baseball. Um, you know, it, it's now, fine. I mean, you know, if you watch baseball uh, 20 hours a day, something's wrong. Right. Exactly. Well, my daughter's around the table. We, she, we, you know, this is when my kids were young. She said, uh, "Dad, should should you?" As I remember, this is this is vague, but as I recollect, can you study your Bible all day and do nothing else? Would that be spiritual? I said, no, it wouldn't be spiritual because <laughs> I'd never be doing it. I'd never be obeying it. I'd never be doing what He's called me to do, and that is to do other things and just read the Bible the whole time. So reading the Bible, if that's all you did, and you never got out, you never went to church, you never did anything, that's idolatry of the Bible, truly. Absolutely. And yes, I was just going to comment on that, you know, that, that it becomes a, 
you know, if it's re- being replaced for things that God has called you to do, but you'd rather do this, then you've replaced the mandate that God has placed on you with the things that you prefer, which ultimately leads back to you're in charge, you're the authority, um, you make up the rules, you establish them, um, and God is, well, not really relevant. Why, um, what was the solution for idolatry in the Old Testament, and what's the solution for it for us today? Well, you know, my answer is not rocket science. The the solution is to repent, to be watchful, and to commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and become conformed to his image. Um, Romans 12, 2 is an idolatry text. If you look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, it's intriguing. There are certain terms and unique concepts that are contrasted with the same terms and concepts in Romans 1, in that idolatry section. So that Romans 12, 1 to 2 is the counterpoint to idolatry. And what does it say? I urge you, therefore, brethren, Romans 12, 1, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world. I believe the Phillips translation has, do not be put in the world's mold. Don't let it mold you. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind in God's word, I think, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And, of course, this, this renewing, this, not being, uh, this conforming and being transforming is the language of Romans 8, to be transformed to the image of his Son. And how does that happen? I, I think that it happens by placing our confidence in God and his word. And I would say that uh, one of the most important ways to be watchful one of the most important ways to be transformed, one of the most important ways that is to God, uh, one of the most important ways to have your mind renewed and not to be an idolater is to read God's Word every day at some significant point. Uh, The amount of time is not significant, but the sincerity of it is. And to pray through what you read. Mm. Pray it'll be true in you. Don't just read it. Do read it sincerely, but go back and personalize it. This has been, I learned, I heard this back when I was in college, and I'm so happy I did, because, you know, when a temptation to sin comes into my life, I try to turn to God's Word so that it doesn't develop. And, mm. and, and often that temptation is a temptation to some form of idolatry. Yeah, just like David or whoever wrote Psalm 119 yeah. Same same ad you know, same counsel. Um yeah. the word I've hidden yeah. in my heart that I might not sin against against God. I mean and, and, and I think that's such a practical help to people because we do live in a world that is contending for our affections in nearly every sphere. Um, uh, you know, I, I think about, you know, smartphones and just comes top of my head. I mean, I carry a smartphone. It, it's contending for my attention. It's contending for my, um, and, and these kinds of things, they capture the emotions of people and, and turn us gradually away from, uh, what ultimately, um, is the sin. And that is trying to live a life of independence from our creator. And I, you know, even, I mean, some people uh, have an aversion to trying to read the book of Revelation carefully for their spiritual lives, but it's very relevant. At the end of chapter 13, it talks about 666, the mark of the beast, which then is said literally, it's the number of humanity, the number of a man, not individual, but the number of humanity. There's no article before 
uh, the word uh, uh, anthropos there. And uh, and some would say, well, you know, that's a barcode or, you know, it's some <laughs> technological thing. But right. it's immediately contrasted in the next verse, in chapter 14, verse 1, with those standing on Mount Zion, uh, with the Lamb and the Father. And it says they had his name and the name of his father on their foreheads. Well, that's, it's not, that's not a barcode. What it, the name is the character. It represents the character of one and one's sovereign presence. And so believers reflect the character of God. They're becoming conformed to him and to Christ and, 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 and are under his sovereign presence, whereas unbelievers take on the character of the beast. And what is that? It's 666. You can go on and, and produce those sixes forever, but they'll never reach the perfect seven in Jesus Christ. Whatever you try to commit yourself to outside of Christ, you'll, you'll never reach that rest in him. Mm. Well, I think that's well said, and that's probably a good place to end. I think, you know, I mean, it's such a intriguing subject, um, you know, just as people reflect, and, and hopefully the listeners will stop and just reflect over the, even the last few hours of their lives and realize that, you know, we all have a propensity to this. I mean, there's, there's still remnants of sin in all of us, and uh, we can easily be, just like the children of Israel, we read about those, those people in Israel, those times in the Old Testament, and we think, how could they have been so dumb? How could they have done those things? I mean, all the... We do the same things. We're just more cultured about it, um, and we're uh, you know careful not to let the whole world you know, world know necessarily that we're doing it. But in, but we're gradually being turned away from what God ultimately created us for, and that is to reflect His image and to depend upon Him for every aspect of our lives. I, mean, you know, I think the Lord's Prayer is uh, uh, so apropos in this reality that we pray to God and we ask Him. For our daily food, we ask Him for to sustain us, to keep us, to uh, uphold us. Why? Because we can't ultimately do it ever. Um, and it's it, we when we start thinking we can, we've turned away from Him. Um, and and I think that's what captures the whole essence of the subject. Um, that either we're we're made in the image of God, and we reflect that, or we're it's something else. And I think you said something there that we're never not susceptible to these things. Uh, it's important to remember that you've got to be ever watchful, no matter how old, no matter how mature of a Christian you are. Yep, that's absolutely right. Well, Dr. Beal, it's been great. I mean, I wish we could spend much more time talking about more aspects of the book itself, but just for the sake of the listeners, how can um, they get a copy? I'm, I'm sure the, the seminary bookstore there has has a means yeah, to Yeah, you can it. go to the Westminster Theological Seminary website, and um, uh, you can order a copy from there. It was published in 2008 through InterVarsity Press um, in um, Downers Grove, and it's We Become What We Worship, subtitled The Biblical Theology of Idolatry. Yep, and there's also, for those who are big Kindle fans who like to have their books on Kindle, I don't particularly enjoy that, but uh, those who do, um, it's also in Kindle version as well. In fact, I have my copy of it in Kindle after I just said I didn't enjoy that. <laughs> the kit. It sounded contradictory, but it really wasn't. It was a, a, a sort of a need-necessitated situation. So, um, But I do have the Kindle. Kindle's a good gift of God, as long as it's in the right perspective. <laughs> That's right. Just become uh, become an idol, as it were. So, uh, Well, Dr. Beale, I know you're busy and um, have many other projects ahead. Just out of curiosity, are you working on anything new? 
Well, as I said, I just finished a shorter project called A Handbook on the New Testament Use of the Old. It's for uh, students, pastors, and I hope scholars will appreciate it. It, 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 it gives a nine-step method of how to interpret Old Testament references, quotations, and allusions uh, when they're found in the New Testament. And I also catalog about 12 uses that there are in uh, the way the New Testament uses the Old. Uh, I give a sample chapter uh, where I take a quotation and try to demonstrate the method. Uh, that book has been put to bed. It's been published. So uh, now I'm working uh, among uh, a number of projects. The one most immediately right now is um, two books. One on uh, commentary in the Greek text of Colossians and Philemon with the Baker exegetical commentary hmm. series, and also a book on the uh, a biblical theology of mystery in the New Testament, uh, covering those passages where mystery is found and concluding and showing that the concept is found elsewhere, even where you don't find the word. Uh, I, I, I might also mention that uh, I'm nearing the end of uh, uh, writing a shortened form of my book, The Temple and the Church's Mission, which will be published through University Press, as well as through writing a shortened form of my commentary on Revelation, uh, which should come out in a couple of years, which uh, um, will come out through Erdman's. Well, you sure have a lot on your plate. I do look forward to that one, though, on mystery, because that's uh, an off, I think an often misunderstood subject, um, yeah. you know, tremendously, actually. And, and, and I'll look forward to personally getting a copy of that to add to my library as well. Well, as I said, Dr. Beal, I know you're busy, and I don't want to keep you any longer. Okay. But I do appreciate your time um, and your labors, um, especially in this subject. I, I didn't know how I was going to feel when I started reading this, because I re- recognized right away that this may not be for the faint of heart as it were that, that there is some there is some depth to the subject and but I think as readers go through this book and and what I had to remind myself to do was to keep focused on the thesis keep focused on the the point and you, where you might feel like you're getting a little lost and confused, just remind yourself that this is where he's headed, and you'll get there eventually um, and just yeah. plow ahead um, but I think it's a, a book worth reading and in and, and digesting and then your last chapter in the book actually starts to cover some of the more practical aspects as it relates to that so right. i think it's very helpful and i think if people take the time it's not something you're going to be able to read in in, in a couple evenings i'm going to warn you now but um i think if you take the time to to work through it i think people would benefit from it tremendously so i thank you for your labors and your work and for your time with me this uh this morning well thank you thank you all right you have been listening to a discussion with Dr. G.K. Beale. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, and he has authored, as you've just heard, a number of books and is authoring a number of books that will be coming out very soon. But we've been talking specifically about a book he wrote, We Become What We Worship, A Biblical Theology of Idolatry. And, and though we didn't necessarily talk about every aspect of the book, we did talk about the subject matter. And so I hope and and would pray that those who listen to this Reflect on your own life, as I have to reflect on mine as it pertains to this subject. As Calvin said, we are a bunch of idol factories, and it's so easy uh, to put our affections in places that that they really ought not be. And uh, I think the Lord is not pleased uh, when we set him aside for other matters. And we need to keep focused on the reality that he's given us many good things. And as sinners, we tend to pollute every one of them. Um, we need to be focused on the Lord dependent on him uh, for even the very breath that we breathe, because that's the reality of it. And so 
think about this subject, uh, get a copy of the book and read it and, and digest it, and I think you'll benefit from it tremendously. Coming up on the broadcast, uh, I'm not exactly sure. We have a number of things on our plate. Um, we are restructuring some things, and so you'll hear more about that in coming days. Visit us at our website, confessingourhope.com. If you want to drop me a line, send me an email. Don't send me hate mail if you can avoid it, but you can send that too. Uh, I get them occasionally. Just kidding, of course. Um, but you can write me at um, confessingourhope at gpts.edu. So until next time, which is probably going to be next week, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.